Welcome back to A Push for Understanding. This is chapter 13 of Spielbogel, the Reformation. <clears throat> and the Reformation, kind of the overview of the Reformation, I suppose, is a pushback to the Catholic Church, mainly a pushback to the Catholic Church's out-of-date ways of influencing politics and influencing culture across Europe from the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages were a very divisive, very decentralized sort of time with governments not really being able to influence their people because their people didn't trust them. Um, and religion was seen more as the constant, mainly the big power of Europe. And they continued to try and use this power and influence that they, that they had during the Middle Ages. And they continued to try and push back against uh, sort of the rising power and more centralized governments of Europe uh, in this modern time, not modern time now, obviously, but as we uh, get past the Renaissance, sort of that modern time. So uh, you sort of see this, these two conflicts merging between the Catholic Church and the government and the Catholic Church over the people. And both the people and their governments are going to push back and say that you can't influence me as much. Um, and so the obviously big name of this time would be Martin Luther, but Martin Luther um, was not actually the first person to really push back against the church or inspire a lot of change. That comes from Erasmus. He was kind of the first humanist, really pushes for a lot of humanist, um, I guess, ideas and influences, mainly trying to push for the reading of the Bible, which means um, being able to learn and fluently read in Latin, um, and also just general sort of cultural influences, uh, learning a lot more about Christian history, the Crusades, um, and sort of pushing it back against the Pope. Um, not directly, of course, but by learning about the Bible, by reading from directly the Bible instead of learning about the Bible through the Pope, and by uh, sort of learning, doing your own research, I suppose, uh, you're pushing back against the Pope's power and influence over the culture and the narrative about the Catholic Church. Along with Erasmus, Thomas More also emerges as a, a leader in London. He's a London lawyer. Um, he's a kind of a big name. Uh, we can trace back his roots a lot uh, in the inspiration of the American government and just American, um, sort of the the way the American government was created, but he's also more of an intellectual and spiritual leader, um, and he becomes uh, kind of, a, again, a friend of Erasmus, but he also uh, really pushes for this humanism across uh, England as well. And so uh, that's kind of before Luther. Now let's get to actual Martin Luther. So Martin Luther is uh, a reformist from Germany. He does not intend to really start this revolution against the church. He doesn't even want to break away from the church. He just calls for reforms from the Catholic Church through his famous 95 Theses, um, which, it should be noted, were probably not nailed to the church door. There is this uh, famous idea that he took his 95 Theses and nailed them to the church door to display them in front of the public. Likely, didn't happen. Um, but it's kind of cool to think it did. So anyway, Martin Luther, uh, again, doesn't really want to break away from the church, but he sees a lot of pro uh, problems with the church, mainly that the church is not really seeking for salvation. People 
the the average person doesn't really believe in God or Jesus at this point. They're just sort of like going along with it to, um, you know, save their souls after life. So he wants people to more, he wants people to take their salvation seriously and really actually believe in their religion. Um, along with this, one of the most famous, um, sort of scandals of the church would be the indulgences, basically the church saying you can pay uh, either for your salvation or someone else's salvation so that they can get into heaven. That's a big um, sort of, that leads a lot of momentum or lends a lot of momentum to Luther. Uh, and he's able to see a lot of success, especially in Germany, where indulgences were paid for this new fancy church that the Pope wants to build, but also across mainly Northern Europe, where the church is not so influential. Obviously, the church is in the Vatican or in Rome. Um, and so the further away you get from that, the less influence the church is going to have. And that's probably why uh, Lutheranism pops up in Germany and spreads across uh, to the British Isles, the UK and the Ireland, spreads to the Netherlands. Well, more uh, Calvinism, but we'll get to that later. Calvinism spreads to the Netherlands. Lutheranism spreads to Scandinavia. Uh, there's the Orthodox Church in Russia, uh, which is its own separate thing. But you get what I'm saying, that um, the closer you are to the Vatican, the more influence that Vatican's going to have over your life. And so Luther, um, upon being sort of this leading thought figure of reforming the church, um, has a lot of um, influence over the people, especially people who already had problems with the Catholic Church, uh, particularly religious, or not religious, sorry, um, more like governors or princes or just leaders of local and state uh, state assemblies. So uh, Luther sees a lot of support mainly among the nobles, especially in the HRE. Um, in the Holy Roman Empire, at the very top, uh, you have Emperor Charles. Uh, he believes, uh, he, he is a devout Catholic, so he um, sides with the Catholic Church at this point in time. But the people underneath him, the princes, the people actually running the different states of the HRE. The HRE, by the way, is a very decentralized government. Uh, King Charles, or Emperor Charles, is really not having a lot of power at this point. Uh, he doesn't really control very much, so the princes ac who actually control the different states uh, side with Luther and actually help Luther a lot, um, mainly as a sign of pushing back against the emperor and trying to put the emperor in his place as he tries to centralize um, that power. And so, like I said at the beginning, this is a really big power struggle in Europe. Um, the Reformation might seem pretty silly, pretty, pretty niche, considering that Lutheranism is really, really similarly close to Catholicism, but the important part of this is not the actual religious differences between the two, it's the political divide between the two, and that's going to play a big role uh, throughout this time. And so as Luther becomes more and more popular, uh, his ideas spread, the Catholic Church uh, begins to see him sort of as a big challenge. Um, and the spread of Luther's ideas also kind of starts some wars. The peasants' or uprising in the HRE, um, basically trying to end the more conservative, more 
tyrannical governments of the HRE. The peasants try and fight back against that. They expect Luther to support them because Luther is seen as this uh, sort of sim or symbolic person, or I guess like thought thought leader of the time to fight against uh, conservative governments and conservative nature of Europe. He does not support that. Luther goes against it, most likely because the princes who the peasants are uprising against um, are helping him a lot. They're sheltering him. They're helping him a lot throughout this time. And so he doesn't really want to upset them, or he doesn't really want to, um, you know, get handed over by the princes to the emperor. So uh, he goes against this peasant's war, and it's eventually crushed. Um, throughout this time as well, um, Germany and really the German politics is starting to become very divided. Uh, the HRE is a massive, massive Central European empire. Along with Luther, you also have the uh, rising up of Zwingli at this time uh, in Zurich, uh, modern-day Switzerland. He pushes a lot against a sort of symbolicism or the sort of praising of religious objects like paintings and statues and uh, religious ideas like that, and more pushing towards uh, reading scripture, reading the Bible, listening to, uh, well, not even really listening to religious leaders, um, because there's a big push against uh, going to mass. There's a big sort of really big push against the Pope and the Vatican, who are seen as uh, a more centralized part of um, the Catholic Church. Along with the Zwinglies, uh, you have the Anabaptists, who sort of see themselves as more mature uh, Lutherans, I suppose you could say. Um, this is mainly because the Anabaptists uh, don't think uh, children or young adults can really decide their religion. So um, instead of like today, how most people are likely born into the church, baptized in the church. Uh, me personally, I was baptized um, at a young age. Uh, you know, no one really knows what's happening at that point. Um, and you don't really believe in anything because you don't think about anything. Um, so the Anabaptists really push back against this idea that people can be born into a religion, and they think that adults should more uh, pick their religion and decide their religion for themselves once they're mature enough to make that decision. Along with the Anabaptists, the Lutherans, you have the... Uh, Reformation in England, the Eng the Anglican Church, which is sort of mostly just uh, Henry VIII making his own church for his own power. His uh, the Anglican Church is not formed really out of the religious divide um, that someone like Lutheran had with the Pope. Um, Henry VIII, more famously um, known for you know killing most of his wives. I should say two-thirds of his wives, because technically two of them didn't die. But, you know, 66% of your wives living is, or 66% of your wives dying is not exactly a good record. Um, Henry VIII's um, Reformation is less about uh, religion and more about politics. And he wants a, he wants to get divorced from his wife, uh, his first wife. Um, but he's unable to do that because divorce is not legal. It's only legal if the Pope says it's legal, uh, or the Pope 
specifically states that you can divorce them. Um, and the Pope is basically controlled by uh, Emperor Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire. And the Holy Roman Empire is an adversary of England. And so they sort of being a very political entity, the Vatican um, denies this divorce and King Henry VIII basically just abandons the Catholic Church. Despite being very Catholic himself, he abandons the Catholic Church and starts his own Anglican Church. And once again, it should be very, very, very noted um, that this is basically all politics. The Anglican Church is basically an extension of the Catholic Church without the Pope as its head. It's instead the king or queen, which, yes, means that um, even today, the king of England or queen of England, um, they are the leader of the Anglican Church, which is pretty silly. <laughs> um, but that has a lot of consequences throughout history because not all kings and queens are going to be uh, Anglican, and they're not always going to be, uh, you know, pro-Reformation. Mainly uh, Queen Mary. Queen Mary pushes back against the reformations that her father made, and instead um, brings the church or brings the Anglican Church back into the sphere of Catholicism and the Pope. That eventually will change with Queen Elizabeth the uh, First, who comes after Queen Mary. Queen Elizabeth is going to. Uh, swing back towards Protestantism and uh, basically align the Anglican Church with England. Um, but as that is happening, you have John Calvin, and Calvin is rising up. John Calvin um, is kind of a humanities study. He studies law in France, um, and his ideas are mainly about um, sort of lining up with uh, like religious doctrine, reading the Bible, much like Luther supported, um, and really just this idea of uh, educating people themselves, letting people do their own research instead of having the Catholic Church. But the dividing point between Calvin and Luther is that Calvin believes in predestination, the idea that people are chosen before um, before they're even born, whether or not they're going to go to heaven or not. Um, and that means that it's a pretty sort of elitist, really, um, I guess, for lack of a better word, offensive religion in that they see themselves as going to heaven and everybody else in the world is going to be, well, not going to go to heaven. Um, and they're going to be in, in eternal suffering. So in that way, it's very hard to make compromises and peace talks and just really do anything with anybody who's not Calvinist because you believe by virtue of your religion that they are um, going to eternally suffer after the, after this life. So, so that eventually sort of divides the Calvinists, the Lutherans, and the Zwingli's and the Anabaptists and the Anglican Church, and they're not really able to unite, which makes them very susceptible, but also their ideas are able to spread so much because they're working at the same time. And so that really weakens the Catholic Church's uh, presence in Europe, really pushes back against their um, centralization, and as you'll see in two chapters, that's going to leave basically a power vacuum in the rest of Europe for 
uh, a more centralized, more absolutist uh, monarchies to pop up around Europe. And so because of this, um, there's sort of the counter-reformation, as it's known, as uh, the Catholics begin pushing back against the Reformation. You have people like the Society of Jesuits um, pushing back mainly across the world. Uh, they go to Japan and China, convert a lot of uh, people to Catholicism. As Europe colonizes a lot more, they'll be uh, spreading Catholicism mostly across Latin America. That's why countries like Colombia, Argentina, and Mexico are so Catholic today, is because of the Society of Jesuits. And, well, it's also why a lot of places are named after saints and popes and different things like San Francisco or San Jose or other places mainly in the West and South are named after so many saints and so many uh, mainly Spanish saints. So uh, uh, the Jesuits really have a lot of power and influence and they're able to basically be an extension of the Catholic Church and spread that um, papal power. That's a that's a fun name and a good band name. Papal power is a good band name. Um, but uh, the Jesuits are able to spread the Pope's influence back just to different areas of the world. Um, whereas the Pope used to influence a lot of Europe, now the Pope is influencing only a small bit of Europe, I guess not a small bit, but less of Europe and more of the rest of the world. Um, and that really revives the papacy, and it allows a sort of kind of negotiation with the Council of Trent. Uh, Pope Paul III tries to make a decisive step um, and basically tries to get some sort of agreement, some sort of peace between them, between the different religions, but it eventually breaks down and the Council of Trent isn't really successful in doing much, which is um, fitting because Council of Trent is really a predecessor to all the religious conflicts that are going to take place. Uh, most importantly, that's going to be the French Wars of Religion. And this is um, pretty complex, and it's a lot. Uh, but to put it simply, the French Wars of Religion are between the Protestants, mainly the Protestants are mainly uh, sort of nobles or people with a lot of influence and power um, between the Catholics, which are mostly princes and kings of France. And over the French Wars of Religion, you basically have two competing powers, the Catholics and the Protestants, mostly uh, Calvinists in Europe, or Calvinists in France. Uh, they are going to be fighting a lot, fighting very brutally, especially in Paris, uh, with the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which is just, I mean, basically a ginormous, so I, I don't even want to call it battle, just more riot throughout France with uh, just sort of swarms of different bands and different uh, religious groups fighting out in, literally fighting out in the streets of France, basically as mercenaries, really just uh, fighting a really guerrilla warfare, urban style. So, um, with sort of the war in France taking off, uh, 
So with uh, the French Wars of Religion, there's going to be a lot of divide, a lot of chaos, and that's eventually going to lead to the Edict of Nantes, which basically, for all intents and purposes, sort of creates a peace between the two. Um, the Protestants are going to be basically, I guess, basically the um, different religions are not accepting each other, but they are acknowledging each other in that the Protestants can live in their own towns, they can do their own things, they can practice their own religions, but uh, the Catholics are also going to live in their own towns, do their own things, practice their own religions, and they don't have to work together because um, they don't want to have to work together, but basically the French are going to be able to basically just stay out of religion. Um, it doesn't grant religious freedom to the people. It grants religious freedom uh, to the people owning the states of France. And so it's sort of freedom of religion, but also like not really freedom of religion in that way. Um, but it eventually does lead to the end of the French Wars of Religion. On the other side of France, you have Spain. And Spain is a very, 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 very devout devoutly Catholic country under Philip II of Spain. Um, Philip II is going to basically turn Spain into the Vatican. Uh, he's going to use his power to kill the Jews, uh, kill the Muslim majorities in Spain. Um, and the reason there are so many Muslim majorities in Spain, by the way, is because so many Muslim empires had spread across um, northern Africa, and actually landed in the Iberian Peninsula, which is so weird to think about, that basically the Ottoman Empire was in Spain for so long, and that Spain was a Muslim country, um, and that their culture really was similar to that of a country like Iraq today. Um, well, I guess not in that way, but a culture influenced by a country like Iraq today is such a weird sort of different world to live in. Um, but eventually, the Catholics begin pushing back against that Spain. Uh, and over hundreds and hundreds of years, you have Spain slowly becoming more uh, Catholic, and then eventually becoming all Catholic under Philip II, or at least all Catholic in theory. Uh, you're never really going to be able to control someone's religion, but you can control someone's religion on paper. And that's good enough for Philip II. Um, but with all this sort of Catholic uh, supremacy, Catholic unity in Spain, you have uh, the Netherlands who wants to break off from Spain because Spain, um, again, Spain is very Catholic, very conservative, basically an extension of the Vatican. And they have a colony of the Netherlands Asterix, it's the Netherlands, plus Belgium, plus Luxembourg, plus some French lands, but it would be known as Netherlands at that point. So the Spanish Netherlands um, is a very Lutheran, very Protestant area, a very also quite progressive area for the time, um, in that they accept other religions, other cultures, mainly the Jews, the Jews who are fleeing from Spain at this point end up a lot in the Netherlands, and over or over the next 100 years or so, the Netherlands is going to attract a lot of religious minorities, 
um, and a lot of sort of class minorities. So, but that's getting ahead of myself. The Spanish Netherlands, for what's important now, is very Protestant. The uh, Spain is very Catholic, and this ultimately leads to the Netherlands revolting, and the Netherlands fighting a very brutal, very uh, guerrilla warfare-like uh, battle throughout uh, their country, with eventually them being able to kick out Spain and establish their own country for all intents and purposes. Spain does not recognize the Netherlands as their own country, but the Netherlands is basically their own country, and they will be recognized by Spain by the end of the Thirty Years' War, but that is next chapter. Um, so, that is all I believed I wanted to say, and I hope you learned something new, and I hope you'll come back for the next episode. Goodbye.